Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning in to Blooming Thoughts, a space where we can share coffee ideas and experiences. We're calling this series Blooming Thoughts in Isolation. This is because at the moment the UK is currently in lockdown, which means that we can't go out and chat with our favourite baristas, go to our favourite coffee shops to hang out. Um, so this is a space we're creating, so you're still able to do that. You're still able to listen into conversations that we're having with people that work within the coffee sphere, whether it's people that are working as baristas, working as roasters, working as freelance, working in the engineer side of things, or engaging with culture um, and making coffee a part of that. It's worth noting as well that these conversations are being had over an online platform. So that means sometimes the connection might not be fantastic, you might not be able to hear everything that's been said, um, but we're not breaking those social distancing laws. Don't worry about that. So let's get stuck in to today's episode. Thanks very much for tuning in. Welcome to this episode where we are joined by Phil McGowan, who is currently studying a master's around the area of coffee production in colonial Kenya. Hello, Phil. Hello, William. How are you? I'm very well. How are you? I'm not too bad. Good stuff. Have you been at much today then? You've had a busy day yourself or? I have. I've delivered many donuts today. So because of uh, ongoing COVID-19 developments, uh, our local cafe, O-Donuts, they're shot unfortunately, but we've decided to be able to deliver donuts and bring a little bit of the cafe to our old customers and people class. have been ordering donuts and it's been it's been really fun that's class about delivering them yeah so you've been the the donut man for today yeah i have there's been there was one or two of us because there's so many orders but it's been it has been fun it's a lot of regulars yeah. from the cafe so it's yeah. cool and have you been what was your mode of transport were you driving were you biking it about Today I was a van man. I had a big for a the van? first time. I was driving a massive a workman's van essentially. So that was it was it was kind of scary at first, and especially the other day I was in the Holy Lands, which is a very tight street area mm. behind the university, like yeah. fast where lots of students live. Yeah, and it's hard to get the massive van uh, down those streets and park in those streets. But it was okay. I don't think I hit anyone or nice. anything. And it's good. It's not exactly. Holy, you know, when I first moved to Belfast, I thought Holy Lands was just like really nice, maybe up marketplace, but it's not kind no, of not like that. So. It, I don't want to say the opposite because I don't want to offend anyone. Yeah. But I mean, have a look for yourself. Google Earth. Yeah. Google Earth exists. Yeah. Zoom in. Zoom in. You can find out. Cool. So, Phil, do you want to tell us maybe a little bit about yourself and maybe give us a fact that people may not know? Okay, yeah. Uh, so I am slash was a barista. Um, I've worked in a few cafes around Belfast over the past seven years. Cool. Um, so I'm no longer behind a coffee machine every day, and I've taken a step back into academia. Okay. And um, not all bad and sad because my research is actually, funny enough, about coffee. Cool. And um, so I think we're going to talk more about that later. Yeah. But the course itself is a master's in economic and social history at the university of cambridge super so that's been really fun so far it's my first year away from belfast away from home so yeah. big year yeah how have you found that moving away from from home yeah actually i was expecting to be quite homesick to be honest because i really love belfast and i really love yeah you know, my friends here and yeah, my, yeah. my girlfriend's here and my cat most importantly my cat yeah, is yeah. here so yeah but to be honest it's been okay and i've made a lot of new friends and it's been nice to sort of get to know a new city. Yeah, totally. 
So the fun fact that no one knows, this this caught me off guard because I had I had to think about that for a while because a fun fact is like usually I have a go-to for that, but yeah, a fun yeah. fact that no one knows, that's a tough addition. Yeah. But I've had some time to think about that a little bit. Okay. And something that not many people know about me that I found out that was fun slash weird when yeah. people did find out was when I started living with my friends, uh, they realized because my toothbrush was left in the shower once they were like why is your toothbrush in the shower uh-huh. because i brush my teeth in the shower oh do you and apparently that's really weird yeah but I'm, i've only discovered this recently that people do that and i find that very bizarre yeah so that's is that that fun i don't know maybe it's well fun. maybe it's just more weird well it's, if you enjoy it it's fun yeah it's, it's fun it's i used to think it was time efficient but <laughs> I don't think I really don't think it is. It does give you those few extra minutes in the shower to sort of yeah. Instead of doing nothing and just enjoying the hot water, you get to enjoy the hot water and brush your teeth. Yeah, I've heard people peeing in the shower as well. You don't, maybe you don't do all three. Do you? you don't pee, brush, and wash? Yeah, maybe that's a thing where you can do all three at once. It's like a triple or something. Yeah, that'd, that'd be. Yeah. No, I I don't pee in the shower. The cosmopolitan shower. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Awesome. So we're going to chat a little bit first of all about your coffee journey. So do you want to tell us um, about your first ever experience with coffee that you had? Yeah, cool. So um, that was, I didn't, I can't recall drinking coffee at all in my early years. I think it scared me and maybe it smelled weird or something. Yeah. But when I was at school, my first job was at Starbucks. Okay. So when I started there, I I hated coffee like the first few times I tried it I thought it was awful but yeah. because we were in so early in the morning to start working open the cafe yeah. I ended up drinking it to keep me awake Sure, and that that was really my first experience and I didn't really think much of it I thought this is good because it keeps me awake yeah chuck in loads of syrup and yeah actually I, I think I did drink filter coffee which is quite strange because when I think when you're drinking it just to keep you awake, you tend to go for something milky or smooth, but yeah. there was something about filter coffee. I think I did take a bit of milk in it, but I think maybe Starbucks encouraged us to try the different filters. So yeah, I, think, I don't think I, I wasn't able to distinguish differences in taste notes or origins at that point. No. And maybe that's also a bit because of the coffee, but um, yeah, it was. I enjoyed having filter. Nice. Wake me up. Yeah, I think it's maybe the cheapest one in Starbucks as well, isn't it? filler yeah, you, it is. you get free phase, I really distinctly remember a phase actually where a, so there was a deal with a Starbucks card where a small filter at Starbucks was 95p yes. and all of a sudden we developed all of these new regulars who'd come in every morning for a small filter yeah yeah, yeah 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 I, I used to wear Starbucks as well and I remember that was a, a very common class. common theme which, which Starbucks did you work at um it's the one kind of closer towards King's Hall direction Ah, okay, that was upper. My upper. my girlfriend's sister worked there too. What a small world. There you go. What a small city. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, and when then did you first discover uh, this other side of coffee that is known as specialty coffee? Um. Yeah. So I think Starbucks did help me introduce help introduce me to that. Ironically, so yeah. Um. A lot of people I worked with were very into specialty coffee and that's what really put it on my radar okay so at starbucks botanic i worked with jason hindman who he went on to work for the barn i think while i was still at starbucks okay and then after starbucks botanic was my first one and after that i moved to starbucks great victoria street and there was a few others there Uh, my friend ben spence 
who would later work with in O and a guy Kyle McDonald and these guys would bring different bags of coffee into the shop okay. and I was so confused because I knew coffee is like these Starbucks bags yeah. and they were bringing all these bright colourful bags in for, for us to try which was really nice and it mm-hmm. was quite it was quite interesting and there was this place that everyone talked about this is how all of the stories go in Belfast I think called Established Coffee Yeah. and I went there I think after shift I went there and I had a filter coffee and I was like this is nothing like what I have experienced in yeah. Starbucks yeah. how yeah. did this happen yeah I think Established is the, the oracle for most people of decent yeah. coffee in, in Belfast uh, it, it's really cool that a lot of us had a similar experience yeah. with that, and that's yeah. what turned a lot of people on to coffee in, yeah. in Belfast. Yeah, it's good credit to them for for that, you know. For sure. And there, from from that point, I think I, I became interested in how coffee could taste different. So I, I became a coffee master at Starbucks, which was really cool because mm. I got to wear a black apron. Yeah, like the black belt, isn't it? You get the black yeah, yeah. apron. Did you have one? No. Um, no, we're not, we're not getting to that. It's a, a hard time uh, in life. Yeah, we'll, we'll. But you get, there's always time to go back, you know? Yeah, yeah there is. <laughs> <laughs> and then after Starbucks, I think it was two or three years at Starbucks, I left to work at Indigo Coffee and Gelato in Stramillis. Nice. And that, I made a lot of great friends there and learned a lot about coffee. Mm-hmm. And that was really fun. And after that, I moved to Odo Nuts to help them open up and no I, I am studying that is a brief history nice a brief history of Phil yes lovely um, yeah so you, you mentioned there that you were for a while working in Old Donuts um, tell us a little bit more about the, the role you had there yeah so yeah it was super fun I really enjoyed it and it was somewhere for me I really I enjoyed it because the other aspects of the business apart from the coffee were so straightforward so it was essentially just donuts and the bakery yeah. who had already it already existed before it opened up and um, it was the always essentially an extension of the bakery and this allowed the baristas or people who were hired for the shop to be baristas solely and focus on making coffee and not have to worry about other things as much as maybe they do in another place and that that sure. was something i really adored about it yeah and in terms of because and a lot maybe quite a few uh, coffee shops would just have the, the one kind of staple roaster but remember whenever i went to donuts what i really enjoyed about that was there was always kind of a a circulation of different roasters um yeah were you involved in that at all and sourcing yeah. out um different coffees yeah yeah that was my that was my baby i loved that was my favorite part of the job i yeah. loved doing that so our house roasters were of course root and branch yeah. Um, so they're a local roastery in Belfast, maybe five ten minutes remote. Sure. So they distributed our equipment, the Slayer, the three temp. Yeah. And we purchased those through them. So it was great to have them around the corner if anything went wrong with those, which yeah. it did a couple of times. And Simon was right on hand to help us out, so that was good. Yeah. Yeah. And the other roasters, we did guest roasters, and those tended to be bigger names from around the UK okay. or Europe. So we had Square Mile, Round Hill. Five Elephant Workshop, and we also have Bailey's from Belfast. Okay. Yeah, they're great. Yeah. You, um, but another thing was I wanted to. I realized my selection process for the guest roaster because I wanted someone who was established and sort of already people would recognize the name and want to come in to try something from them. Yeah, I realized we were naturally excluding from our selection smaller roosters and newer roosters who, who were trying 
I'm struggling to develop a name. Yeah. And I wanted to be able to provide a platform for those roasters, especially the more interesting ones that not a lot of people had heard about. Sure. So we had a thing called a spotlight roaster. Okay. And that was where we'd feature one coffee from a smaller and newer roaster with a unique approach to the industry. And it was sort of a way of saying to people who follow Owen Blacker Coffee, hey, here's something that we've uh, found out about and we think it's really cool. Mm-hmm. And you should try it too. So we have like them on filter and one option on retail. And I think a good example of that was uh, Redemption Roasters. Yeah. So they're, they teach prisoners how to roast coffee. So they're actually based inside of a prison. Yeah. Uh, the Mount Prison in Hertfordshire. Yeah. So they young reoffenders. they focus on people who reoffend because it tends to be a lot of that problem is uh is to do with not having a job skill sure so you essentially come out of prison and find yourself in the same position that you were in before sure so they took they taught those guys how to roast coffee how to be baristas so when they came out of prison they had a place to turn to to look to get a job and yeah that was it was really cool to be able to show off that story and tell customers about yeah. that story because yeah. i think people are so amazed when like the social power of coffee is incredible yeah, that's yeah. just a fantastic example yeah yeah i really love them yeah and their coffee was banging too yeah i remember getting one that kind of tasted almost like fizzy you know it's quite strange to say but yeah yeah like like this these almost like yeah. carbonated yeah, yeah 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 totally uh great okay so now we're gonna kind of focus in a little bit more about what you're doing at the moment so you've mentioned briefly that you are studying a master's um in cambridge uh, just to remind us again what exactly it is that you're studying. So the course is a master's in economic and social history. It's research led. So before we started to get onto the course, you have to apply with a research proposal. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted to, at that point, at this, I still don't know, to be honest, at this point, I'm, I don't know whether I want to continue coffee or in coffee yeah. or in academia because I, I enjoy both. Yeah. But so I proposed research that would orient around coffee, and I'm looking at the origins and development of the coffee industry in colonial Kenya. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's sort of where the coffee industry began, around the 1900 mark, ranging until 1960-ish. So, mm-hmm. yeah, from its roots, the, the coffee industry in Kenya was just sort of dominated by Brit- British settlers who came to live there. Yeah. And it wasn't really until the 1950s, shortly before Kenya actually obtained independence in 1963, that African coffee growing was really able to take off. Okay. So most of the focus of my research rests on explaining the effects of this British monopoly of coffee growing in Kenya. Mm-hmm. And sort of looking at the industry that they developed and thinking about why Africans were excluded, what it meant for those Africans who would later become coffee growers and what it potentially also what that means for the industry now and uh, long-lasting long-run effects of that yeah yeah cool really interesting um what what led you then to start studying this specifically yeah so this is where i think coming from a, a coffee industry background with some knowledge about coffee about coffee plants and how coffee mar- is marketed and yeah other, just other general knowledge about coffee or knowledge that i've I've obtained through the industry or through reading about coffee has actually helped me in breaking down what current economic history and economic literature has to say about the development of Kenya's coffee industry. Yeah. And I think the most important part of what that sort of illuminated to me was what this literature doesn't say and maybe what it should say about coffee. So a project very naturally emerged from that for me, which was good. Yeah. 
Um, so a lot of economists and economic historians write about coffee in Kenya with almost a disregard for its position in the industry or sort of its, it's almost a geographical disregard for the coffee that is grown in Kenya and the circumstances it comes from. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so they write about, I think a lot of the, some of the first few writings I came across that twigged me onto this were that um, earlier economic stories writing that it was cruel for Kenyans not to be able to grow coffee and this was because of, sadly, because of racist reasons about African farmers being incompetent to Europeans. And uh, there was European ideals about farming that essentially settlers just wanted to import and forget about any methods that Africans were using to try to grow coffee yeah. um, and force those into culture uh, and into how coffee was grown. Okay. Well, so it's, qu- it's quite a big big topic to tackle but one that's going to be very interesting and you mentioned you're hopefully going to be getting out to Kenya as well at some point is that right? Yeah so I was actually supposed to be in Kenya today I was supposed to be in Kenya since maybe last week so unfortunately due to the COVID-19 developments that trip had to be postponed Yeah. and my master's essentially postponed too until it is safe to carry out that research Um, there's a lot of there's the Kenya National Archives, which is based in the capital, Nairobi, yeah. they carry a lot of materials that aren't actually digitised and that would be fairly essential to my research. So yeah. it's, it is it is funny to say, but I, I simply have to go to Kenya University. Mm-hmm. I, I, simply, I must go to Kenya to carry out my research yeah, because yeah, yeah. the materials aren't available online. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you're still going to get out there then eventually at some point, that's the plan? Yeah, then. I'm hoping so. I'm hoping eventually... Uh, travel becomes safe and yeah. I'm able to rebook the trip hopefully it's not too long um, yeah maybe get we'll a, see. maybe get a safari in there as well yeah for sure we'll, yeah. we'll see how much money's in the bank account yeah, but yeah. that would be really cool yeah. yeah great so before we get stuck in a little bit more um, into your dissertation um, maybe some people out there listening that aren't totally familiar with um, the journey that coffee has so could you briefly just give us a little um Tell us the progress of how a coffee ends up being in a cup in a cafe. Yeah, yeah. The origin that I know most, of course, is Kenya. So I can do this for Kenya. From, yeah. from I'll do a rough, a rough story of fr- coffee from being grown in Kenya yeah. to your cup. Um. Yeah, yeah. For most origins, there is there's a different story of the hands that passes through on the processing end. Yeah. Um, but for Kenya farmers for the most part these farmers are generally they have small holdings which are less than 10 acres maybe one to five acres so very quite small farms and sometimes they also aren't exclusively coffee farmers so this means that they don't have the facilities to process coffee by themselves so from them the coffee after they grow it it's passed on to a cooperative and through the cooperative they pay the farmers their wages and they process, wash and dry the coffee. Yeah. Um, and then the cooperative are also responsible for grading the coffee. Grading in the sense that Kenya, you sometimes see on Kenyan bags, A, 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 B. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they'll grade it that way. So it's sort of screen size. That's to do with the size of the coffee. Yeah. Um, and then they'll pass it on to the marketers. And the marketers are responsible for grading the coffee in the sense that we see it. So that's where the score out of 100 comes from. Yeah. We, 
I think we hear about that quite a lot and are more closer to the brewing end of the spectrum. Yeah. Um, and then, so the, the market is responsible for selling the coffee after this is done. So that in Kenya, there's two ways coffee can be sold. And the first is that it goes to auction. So mm-hmm. in Nairobi, every Tuesday at the Nairobi Coffee Exchange, you can go and bid on certain lots of coffee um, after they're graded. So you sort of know, have an idea of how they've been graded and roughly where it's from based on the cooperative. Okay. Or else it goes directly to an exporter. So in Kenya, the biggest example would be Dormans. But for people in Belfast listening, uh, Root & Branch would use Nordic Approach. And I'm not sure if they have done for Kenya, but that would be an example of an exporter who would go mm-hmm. directly to or as close to the source as possible. So in the case of Kenya, Nordic Approach would go to the cooperative and say, we will buy this coffee for X price. And then yeah. they can begin to be- begin build a relationship based on the quality of the coffee and what's this worth. And yeah. it's 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 closer to home. Cuts out some of the middlemen involved in marketing, which yeah, Kenya yeah. has become a bit of a problem. Okay. From there, the, the rest of the story we're more familiar with. So mm-hmm. it goes to exporters, to roasters, coffees roasted, generally in our case by a European rooster, yep. shipped to the cafe of your choice, brewed, hopefully, excellently, yeah. and with care, and then handed over the counter to you. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's a big, big process. Um, yeah. A lot of people don't quite grasp how big it is, you know, and how many people are actually involved in it as well just from one think about it one bean you know such a big yeah, process for that one one bean and it's crazy how many different stories those coffees can have yeah. like different origins and yeah that's part of what is enhances my interest in coffee is um how like these there's these different just these crazy different stories that coffee can have and the socioeconomic backgrounds of coffee, political backgrounds and yeah. these different institutions it has to pass through to be able to, to be sold for farmers to be able to get their wages. And yeah. it's, it's so different in every country and that has an impact on what coffee it does end up in your cup. Yeah, for sure. Phil's given me a little bit of his uh, research proposal. So I've had a read of that and it's been very interesting, mm. um, but it's kind of split up into two parts mainly so the first part is focusing more on um on the kenyan coffee itself um do you want to maybe tell us what makes the kenyan coffee industry so distinguished from the other the other african regions yeah so i think it's the so kenya in east africa to situate it so you've got neighboring in the colonial period tanganyika which is now uh, tanzania and also uganda yeah so Uganda is the easiest comparison because in Uganda you've got this big low basin of land which is suited for growing robusta coffee. Yeah. So Uganda pretty much primarily exports robusta coffee. There is some Arabica but mostly robusta and Kenya I think to this day is 100% Arabica apart from a few experimental robusta lots. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what that's how it's situated okay. in, in Africa on yeah. that coast. And that sort of feeds into the historical story in quite an interesting way as well. Yeah. yeah. Um what exactly is the difference then you mentioned two things that you mentioned Arabica and Robusta. Um are you able to tell us just quite briefly what what they are and what the difference is between them? Flap. Okay. Intense. Um so 
coffee, there are, there are many species of coffee, and Arabica and Robusta are two, two types within that. So um, I think a lot of us are used to hearing coffee that is 100% Arabica is the only thing that we should be drinking. Hmm. And that is uh, not necessarily the case, but it's a marketing feature that's been built into how coffee is branded and uh, marketed for different companies across the world. Yeah. Um, Robusta came around, well, Robusta actually existed longer than Arabica, but Robusta's, the surge in Robusta growing happened because it is literally more robust in that okay. sense that it, it combats diseases better. Okay. So farmers are able to grow more of it easier. Yeah. And generally also the plants produce more yield. Yeah. So with Robusta, you get, it almost seems like a win-win from the get-go because you plant Robusta, if you're land suited to it, like Uganda, you plant Robusta, yeah. you get a high yield and it's not as susceptible to the diseases such as coffee leaf frost that torment coffee plants. On the other hand, you plant Arabica and it's susceptible to all of these diseases, very hard to grow, and quite, mm. in a sense, quite fragile. Um, so yeah, that's yeah, that's the interesting okay. difference between yeah. Kenya and Uganda. But the main thing about Arabica is that it's more expensive and generally believed to be of this a higher quality, which leads to this perception in marketing. So yeah, in in colonial Kenya, who would have been responsible for uh, being the farmers on the plantations? Yeah, so um, you've got the from the eighteen nineties sort of when coffee was introduced in Kenya. This is also when the period of high colonialism was kicking off. So you've got the British farmers who are they they see that coffee is of high value. They see that Kenya being on the equator and having great terrain for Arabica coffee yeah. can produce insane quality coffee and they monopolized this so they were the primary growers until the 1950s bar a few experimental farms okay could there have been any arguments uh, used to prevent native africans from from farming themselves from getting their hands dirty so to speak yeah it's, that's that is this is part of what i'm looking at so um a lot of historians believe that the the native africans who wanted to grow coffee couldn't because the Europeans placed very strict controls on them because okay. the Europeans believed in the eyes of these historians that African farmers were incompetent due to like racial mm. racially derived reasons. Okay. Um, and I think this is to an extent true, uh, but we'll come back to that. And there's also there's another reason, uh, which would be I'm trying to think of the best way to describe this, but. Um, in colonies where settlers such as in Kenya where British settlers came to live they they wanted to source native labour for their own use so the British farmers set up these farms and when they start to plant coffee what is to prevent Kenyans from also starting to plant coffee and selling it for the same price mm -hmm. uh, essentially nothing so historians write that the British settlers stopped Kenyans from growing coffee to essentially gain a cheap labour mm. source for their own farms. Mm. So it, mean, it meant that British farmers could pull Kenyans from essentially being able only to produce and sell things like maize or corn yeah. into coffee farming where they would 
maybe get a better wage, a slightly better wage. Yeah. Uh, but ultimately be working for or on European farms. Yeah, yeah. Wow. But the the reason that I'm sort of forwarding is that there was there's this contrast between industries. Um, I know this has been touched on by historians, but maybe not applied so much directly to Kenya, mm-hmm. uh, where the Arabica industries, for the most part, were industries focused on quality. Um, the robust industries, you could argue that for the most part, historically, I don't want to uh, crap on robusta yeah. now because I think there are some amazing quality robustas, but historically robust industries were based on quantity and not quality. Okay. Um, and the settlers in Kenya, because Kenya was more suited to Arabica, yeah. they developed this industry focused on growing coffee of high quality, which was naturally more labor intensive. Mm-hmm. and more capital intensive and all that means is that it was it required more labor and more labor inputs so it required a lot of people working on the coffee and a lot of labor put into how it was set up on the farm mm-hmm. and how the farm was maintained and also the capital which is just the money literally the financial assets to set up these processing factories that would clean the coffee grade the coffee process the coffee and uh, be able to promise the seller this is this is the bag of coffee that you're getting it is of this grade okay yeah so yeah. i'm sort of saying that that well i'm hoping to say if if what i find in kenya aligns with this yeah that the industry crafted or produced eventually set up by settlers in kenya yeah was one that didn't from the get-go explicitly exclude African farmers, there was no law that ever said Africans can't grow coffee, but yeah. because there was this high capital entry to the industry, which African farmers simply didn't have, yeah. they they couldn't enter the industry, they couldn't start growing coffee because they couldn't process it. Mm-hmm. They didn't have the facilities processed, they didn't have the money to set up these facilities. Yeah. Some in neighboring Tanzania, then Tanganyika, yeah. you have farmers who tried to grow Arabica coffee, but they were essentially ended up producing, because they didn't have the facilities to process it, Yeah, uh, they ended up producing what we would now call a natural coffee, okay. but what they called Mbuni, or Buni coffee, which okay. is spelled M-B-U-N-I for people who want to look that up. Okay. And it's just coffee that is dried with the fruit on in the sun instead of that being washed off. Yeah. But at that time, it was simply because they didn't have the facilities to wash it and it was of poor quality and inconsistent. Yeah. Yeah. So essentially the settlers created this high capital entry industry with barrier that prevented Africans from entering it. So you mentioned there that there's some uh, pieces of equipment, the things that the settlers um, couldn't get hold of. What what kind of things would that, that have been? Yeah, so the, the Africans... There was this capital divide between the Africans and the settlers. So the settlers had, I think a lot of this rests on uh, the Department of Agriculture, who were um, part of the story of greater colonialism, and they were responsible in sort of experimenting with crops that Britain could and couldn't grow in different areas and uh, how they could grow them and uh, working out how to best cultivate these crops. And... They imposed a lot of, not imposed, but they brought about a lot of uh, 
they researched a lot on the coffee industry in Kenya. A lot of people might have heard, of, a good place to start on this is Scott Labs. So a lot of people have heard you're in the coffee industry hmm. or who like their coffee have heard about Scott Laboratories. So yeah. when we talk about Kenyan varieties, we say, we say SL28 and SL34, yeah. Yeah. bags. Yeah. So that's, that essentially means Scott Laboratories 28, Scott Laboratories 34. Um, and these guys were commissioned by the Department of Agriculture to essentially research coffee varietals in what is best suited to Kenya's soil. Okay. And those, the SL28 and SL34, are, they are numbers of experiments, which of cultivation, cultivars which came from their experiments um, and which could be grown in Kenya. And those were the two, some of the two most successful ones. And they actually still, they're still growing today, which that's why we can see them on bags, of course. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, so there was things like that, that the... There was that was high capital. There was these guys coming over to experiment with coffee and different coffees that could be grown. Yeah. And essentially the seeds from those, they were expensive. Um and also growing those, despite them being amazing coffees to sell, growing them required a lot of capital. Yeah. So you needed to manure them correctly, plant them correctly process them correctly so like a processing facility would have costed thousands of pounds yeah a lot of the massive a good difference between the farms as well is that the european farms generally there wasn't a spectrum of sizes but the european farms were quite big so um they had their own processing facility sort of built on uh whereas a lot of smallholders africans couldn't afford this and that's why eventually the cooperative system would develop with Develop, which we have now. Yeah. So the cooperative provides a processing facility for sure. maybe 500 African farms. Sure, yeah. So that yeah. really really facilitated quite a lot then to um, do that. Yeah, so the once the cooperatives came about, sort of starting in the late 30s, you have Africans being able to finally process their coffee and finally work towards this, this industry oriented around quality that settlers had created. Yeah. And that's interesting because in a lot of other African history, the Department of Agriculture are sort of looked upon as essentially useless. So historians would say that they imposed methods of farming that were Eurocentric, sort of European ideas yeah. in areas that they weren't best situated. So I think my supervisor, actually, Gareth Austin, he, he writes about cocoa in Ghana. Yeah. So what's interesting there is that a lot of Europeans farms ended up closing because in and comparatively in Ghana, Ghana to Kenya, mm-hmm. the Africans were actually able to grow this their high value crop, which was cocoa, and they were able to compete with the settlers. So the settlers who followed the Department of Agriculture's guidelines, such as planting cough planting cocoa, sorry, in these very long straight lines with nothing else on the farm, monoculture it was called, um this didn't work for those farmers and actually Cadbury's had a farm I found this really interesting mm-hmm. Cadbury's had a farm that closed in the 1920s oh, wow. and it was outcompeted by Africans because they were more aware of how to work the land yeah and um, so a lot of it's to do with soil erosion so the Africans knew that they had to follow one part of the land uh, while they moved on to another part of the land and planted cocoa there and um, so a lot of historians make an assumption based on case studies like that the Department of Agriculture were useless yeah but in kenya it seems that the story was 
a lot more mixed than that. And yeah. The quality focused industry actually benefited from the assistance of the coffee industry. Yeah. So That's there's this interesting sort of thing to pick apart where we're talking about how how useful were the Department of Agriculture and how how much of it is actually down to excluding African farmers based on racial ideals and yeah. how much of it is actually useful, yeah. Yeah, and that's an interesting comparison then that, that you can see there. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Great. Well, we could go on um, for a lot longer and chat um, about this, but if anybody out there wants to find out more, is there any way they could um, be happy for them to get in contact with you in any way? Yeah, for sure. Um, I am readily available on Instagram at phil, P-H-I-L, dot. My second name is McGowan, but McGowan was taken, so I changed the N on the N to an O, which is the letter after N on the alphabet. Yeah. So it's Magawao. Magawao. So M-A-G-O-W-A-O if you want to follow me or send me a message or do something really nice. Yeah. That would be really cool. Yeah. Cool. Um, so we'll, just, we'll finish off just by asking you a little bit about um, how you, you make coffee yourself at the moment. So do you still, you said you're no longer working as a barista, but would you still make coffee yourself? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So my, my coffee setup is quite lackluster okay. at the minute. So then I'm working with the AeroPress. Um, it's just quick, it's clean, it's yeah. efficient. And thankfully, while I'm studying, while I've been in Cambridge, I haven't been short for coffee either. The guys at O have sent me coffee. Uh, I'm a friend, Josh, who works at the barn, sent me coffee. Okay. Um, and I got coffee from Root and Branch. So I've been completely sorted for coffee. And I've just maybe brew like two or three a day. Nice. So that's been good. Yeah. And have you got any kind of plans then for the future? Maybe it's a bit unsure at the moment, but is there anything that you are um, looking towards then? Yeah, I'm still I'm still straddling this sort of weird gap between academia and coffee. But um, if I was to go into coffee, I'd love to work on the sourcing end um, more towards the producing end. Yeah. Or if, if I was to go into academia, I'd love to write more about coffee. So essentially straddle the gap as long as possible and yeah. put off making a decision for as long as possible yeah well we've got a good chance to do that now where most of us are locked down so yeah, yeah i'll keep reading and i'll keep making coffee so yeah. no excuses definitely well phil thanks very much for taking time to speak to us really appreciate that thank you very much for having me on that was fun yeah good fun um maybe see you about um driving a van with full donuts at some point yeah yes place an order and yeah. oh donuts will bring donuts straight to your door and i will say hello check that out great thanks phil thanks cheers bye-bye bye